No hard T. <laughs> what you say like it's French. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! So that's great intro material that will never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost like, let's start a new track. <laughs> I got tears in my eyes. Console Crusade Podcast. Oh my gosh. EJ Olsen, Nick Durheim, Chris Gilly4. Whew. That was good. The people will never know, but I'll know. So we're going to do Last of Us Breakdown. Chris, I was telling Nick before we started recording that I rewatched the episode right before we got on and I took two pages of notes. I did make a list of what I've been playing lately. I'm wholly unprepared for that. Chris, what have you been doing? Well, uh, I have to uncork a Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order rant that you've all already heard in text like 17 <laughs> yes. times over that I uh, I played that game to completion. I got the like gold edition for like seven bucks on a PSN sale and uh, was like, great, I finally get to play this. Um, lots of stuff that ultimately for me, it, it's like, it, I think it's scored pretty fairly. It's, it's like, I, I think an 82 average on uh, Opa Critic. I absolutely think that's about the right range. Really frustrating that this could have been like an 85 or an 86, maybe even a size like an 88 if it didn't perform so badly. And I'm playing it on the tech that it launched on. And I had some people who were kind of like side-eyeing me going, well, you're playing it on old tech. I'm like, you can go fuck yourself. I'm playing it on the tech it was released on. And so I don't give a shit if there are better versions out there in more expensive tech that I don't have. This is the game that it, this is the platform it released on. It should perform well on the platform it released on. It just didn't like stutters, freezes, constant frame drops. The traversal mechanics occasionally were just like bafflingly bad. Um, the sliding. <laughs> oh my God. The fucking foot, the foot skiing. <laughs> Who decided that was a good idea in 2018. They were like, this makes sense. In 2018, they said we need save points to make a comeback. This makes sense. In 2018, they said we have to hold down a button like fucking Assassin's Creed two on the Xbox 360 to climb a fucking wall. If I jump at the wall with the grabbable fucking vines, I'm pretty fucking sure that means I want to climb the fucking wall. Who is this for? Who is this helping? Anyway, lots to like. <laughs> and all the things that I did like were ripoffs of Metroid Prime. This game is Metroid Prime with a, with a lightsaber. You've got a fucking scan visor in the form of uh, uh, BD-1, who is running around documenting things for you in the world. Uh, you have backtracking every time you unlock new force powers or BD gets an upgrade, you return to a world that you made mental notes of, oh, I need to pull that thing down. I have force pull. I can go back. That's fucking Metroid Prime. The map even looks like Metroid Prime's map and all of its warts <laughs> in the 3D multi-dimension where the fuck am I shittery that was, you know, 2002. Um... Yeah, and the exploration of these worlds was like literally like straight out of Metroid Prime 3. So I liked all that stuff. I thought that the story was like pretty compelling. Um, I cared about the characters by the end, which surprised me because I didn't think I was going to. And it's like a good proof of concept. I sincerely fucking hope that uh, Survivor runs a lot better. Uh, the combat looks like it's way less floppy just based on the initial gameplay they released, but I'm going to sort of withhold judgment on that till I see it looks like some dope new force powers, but yeah, I was like real mixed bag. I had a pretty good time, but was very frustrated a lot of the time. I think we touched on it last week, the week before, but the problem with iterative 
console cycles is like, because I, I thought to myself, like, I didn't have any problems with it. I'm realizing I played that on the PS4 Pro, which is obviously what the developers are targeting. Uh, and and presumably you're on a launch day PS4, right? Not, not like the Slim. Rectamundo. Not that the Slim was any better than the launch PS4. It's just older. I'm thinking like, how much older is it? Are you having thermal issues exactly? Compounding what was already probably not a very good version on the base PS4. Sure. But this, I mean, that, that game is what, 2019? Like this came out not that fucking long ago. Right before the PS5. Like, I remember when The Last of Us came out, it ran so poor. I mean, it was like a 22 frame per second experience. Stutters, freezes, crashes. And it was like everything to get through that experience for me on a uh, second gen PS3. But it was just so compelling. You just had to keep going. Um, And then playing it on the PS4, you know, locked at 60 and, and upgraded visuals. Like, holy crap. So it's just the problem with where the industry is in regards to hardware. Um, I mean, how how was your experience from just a performance standpoint playing God of War on the PS4? Substantially better. Uh, that yeah, it ran it ran it ran well. Uh, I had I could count on one hand, I think, the number of times that I had like noticeable frame drops. And I'm not I'm not a big like performance nerd, so there may have been stuff that I wasn't aware of, but it didn't. If I wasn't aware of it, then I don't care. Um, and there were a couple times moving between a couple particularly large areas where I would have a pause with the little Omega with the runes that would pop up for a couple seconds to load the area. And then it would come back. Uh, but it was really infrequent, like seriously, like maybe five total times through 30, 40 hours of playtime. Usually my first playthroughs of a game, uh, when they give you performance options is I'll play it on the highest graphical setting and I endure the 30 frames per second. You know, keep in mind, my monitors are like, 144 hertz refresh rate and I have a 3080 Ti like I'm playing games on my PC at like four times the frame rate than anything I'm playing on a console usually so I I suffer through the 30 frames per second because I want to see sort of like what did the developer want me to experience right and even though I think 30 frames is like a failure as far as like being a target that the industry is striving for like when I went back to do my platinum and all you know clean up all my collectibles I turned it to the performance mode and oh my god it's night and day it's just smooth as butter it's almost disconcerting the first time you switch to a higher frame rate and you're like this isn't right nick you played fallen order for a while but you didn't stick with it did you i didn't play it for that long cuz it was just when you came over and we we opened it up and we were playing it for like 30 minutes to an hour i would say we were, we were trying to kill ogdo bogdo <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to kill uh, Oingo Boingo, the frog boy, Oingo's on the first boing- level. Did you call- I called him Oingo Boingo. <laughs> <laughs> it's the obvious thing. That but was yeah, um, maddening. I couldn't really wrap my head around the controls in that time. It felt like a a poor sort of FromSoft totally. approximation. Oh, and God. then yeah, I don't like the the insistence from Western AAA to have so much animation priority and just the movement, like just. Having a turnaround animation is a failure of gameplay design for me. I cannot get behind it. I hate it. It's the absolute worst. Totally agree. When I started playing that, thank you for like giving words to something that I observed and was like, I don't know how to talk about this, but I remember like starting the game and every time I would start sprinting, there's that janky little two second wind up where he starts to get into his sprint. And I'm like, why is this here? This is muddy. Like, for sure. And not to mention his run looks, he looks like a total goober. 
90% of the time of everything he's doing, it's EJ's <laughs> doing a good. <laughs> when you try a force power and it doesn't work and he like holds his hand out and shakes and then like looks at his hand, but he's like moving the whole time, moving the whole time. It's like weird. Like it's over animated. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. You mentioned that there's a bit of Metroid Prime in this game. There's a bit of like from soft Dark Souls in this game, but there's also a bit of Uncharted in this game. And it really shows in what they um, are trying to show off in like set piece moments like the train. EJ was like, this is straight up just an Uncharted level. And totally. like me not having played those games because they do not interest me in the slightest based on what I said about my uh, distaste towards a lot of Western AAA. They did take a lot of that. And I think that is what people are often impressed by in like short little quote unquote gameplay trailers where it's like in engine footage, but it's not gameplay. You're just watching a guy walk along a, a train and he reaches his hand out and touches the wall. Isn't that impressive? It's like, no, that's just a cool little, that's like a, that's a detail, but that's not impressive. Yep. I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> I, I complained about this before in most recently when Elden Ring took off and I said, great, get ready for three to five years of everyone trying to bite what Elden Ring does. Like, and that this is what this game did is it, it didn't do anything uniquely other than just like telling a good Star Wars story, which is, you know, more and more Pretty rare. Unique. Yeah, it's exactly. incredibly, incredibly unique. <laughs> yeah, we had the bonfires and a poor interpretation of the combat from a Souls game. And, you know, we had the map and exploration of a Metroid game. And a skill tree of every AAA game. Well, this one at least made sense, though, or it's like he literally suffered like this incredible trauma, which first time that I've played a game that actually let me like play through Order 66 going down like all around me as a youngling, which I thought was kind of tight. Cool. So it made sense, like, got to get get the stuff back that was that, that you've cut yourself off from. But it's still a skill tree. It's still a skill tree. Yeah. yeah. And I can still I can respect it just because it is a very gamey game just from my limited experience with it. It felt like a game from late PS2, early PS3. Like it didn't feel like it was whole cloth ripping off everything around it. And it's nice to see EA have a game that's like a single player video game and not like Try to chase a trend. God, that's the truth. I am concerned, as I said, story-wise, I don't know how they could possibly do anything more compelling and more interesting than what the original game did. And I, Chris, you had mentioned, like, you know, I don't care about the canon. I don't care how it fits in the universe. But unfortunately, the people writing that game do, and they have to. And so, yeah. you know, the the first game, you had the Inquisitors, which have been, you know, expanded upon greatly in multiple different shows. And you have the Darth Vader cameo, uh, spoiler alert, uh, I like how it's a running theme where I always drop the spoiler alert after I spoiled something major on this podcast. That moment was so fucking tight, partially just because <laughs> oh I, I was so God. it was such a like a bottle game devoid of any real connection to anything else. And then all of, you know, you, you take out the Inquisitor and just like boots on metal and that inhale exit. And I went, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. I have to find him. Fuck, 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 fuck. And he's like blocking everything. Fuck, shit, fuck, shit, fuck. Like. Great, great, great sequence and holding back like all the flood water that's coming into the tunnel while you're getting out. Just like that's awesome. That's Kino. That's Darth Vader Kino for me. I can't remember if isn't that scene with the water. Isn't that like in the Force Unleashed or something? Or maybe there was another Star Wars, like a more recent property. Probably Kenobi because they ripped off. They ripped off the entire Fortress Inquisitorius infiltration. Yeah. Literally right. whole cloth from that game so it wouldn't surprise me if that was in there somewhere but i've blocked that show out because it was awfully it was bad truly truly terrible you know and, and that game is like like chris you you i presumably have not watched clone wars or rebels you have not read any of the comics 
no. uh, the Disney produced stuff. So like the expanded universe is really where Star Wars has shined. It's the books and the comics and uh, things like Rebels. Everything untouched by Disney and George Lucas. Well, pretty much. Like when when you give people who care about the property carte blanche. Yeah, they yeah. they make good things. So that game had a lot of awesome stuff, and it really blended the prequel and the sequel era, like yes, really well in a way that nothing else really has. And you mentioned obviously Order sixty six, but in the look, in the feel, those two eras are so distinct, and this married it in an interesting way. And and, and every, around every corner there was something that I recognized, probably less so for someone who hasn't you know consumed all of the expanded universe media, but. Yeah, I just don't know how they're going to do that. I mean, they, they can't do the Inquisitor thing again. You know, they can't do... I mean, I guess they could do Darth Vader again, but how cheap will that feel the second time? I'll tell you what I think they're going to do. Well, there's always more Inquisitors for sure, but I think that we're about to get maybe even like the second sister from Kenobi, maybe the Great Inquisitor. Oh, Christ. Uh, I think Please that... Don't. I think... I know, but I mean, that that's my speculation. What I would love, what I would really, really love is... Uh, there's Stellan Skarsgård's Luthen coming in to do oh, yeah. uh, supply drop, or there's you know somebody from like you know uh, some folks from Andor. Maybe there's like Jillian Anderson's Mon Mothma. You know, there's like a communication with her as a rebel. Let's go again. I I don't know how uh, what year it is in terms of like before Battle of Yavin, but I'm sure they'll give us like a title card for that uh, at the beginning of this game. We get a Mando cameo. Mando cameo? Well, isn't he? No, he's post. I mean, he's around, presumably. He's still, I mean, he's an adult and active at this point, right? Yeah, I suppose that's true. Because he gets picked up. Because I remember the, the flashback is like super battle droids. So you assume that that is Clone Wars era. And maybe this is answered somewhere in the canon. I don't, I didn't pay enough attention, but no, I think you're right. I, yeah, we could, we absolutely could, or we get, uh, you know, just a little bit of Diego Luna really quickly, but it feels like, it feels like they're going to give us, that's the place they would give us that as opposed to having Cal Kestis appear in Andor. Cause that show does not need yeah. Jedi. And I would feel cheapened if they give us Jedi, but you put them in survivor and I'm like, yeah, I fuck with that. Like I definitely fuck with that. Give me Cal Kestis in Andor season two, but never make him do Jedi things. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to see his lightsaber. I don't need to see him fucking mind controlling somebody or throwing a stormtrooper off with a fucking force push off of a cliff. He's just hanging out on a bus with his droid pal. Like, he could still be doing something important that helps the rebellion. You know, people who don't even know the game won't even know he's a Jedi. That would be awesome. I would love that. That's what rebels do. They rebel. That's Okay. (laughs) Whoa, what a great segue. Nick, what are you playing? I've got a lot of games on my recently played on Switch, so I figured I would sort of run through them really quick. Um, I picked up a cute little game called Super Kiwi 64 a couple weeks ago. It's like sub $5. If you're familiar with Tori 3D, it's the same developer that made that game. And this is just a loving homage to the 3D collectathon platformers of the N64, but in an extremely brief and bite-sized sort of size. I... I played it for, it looks like about an hour between one and two hours, hundred percent of the game. Great ass time would recommend feels good. You run around, you pick up these little gears. There's no dialogue. There's no explanation. You just run, you jump and you find things and then you beat the level and you back the hell out. That's got a nice little soundtrack. Do recommend. I also picked back up uh ukulele in the impossible layer. This is one that I've talked to Chris a little bit about. I think he'd, 
get a kick out of it. Um, it's the follow-up to the original ukulele, which was a Kickstarter game that was um, a lot of the OG devs from Rareware back in the day, and they were trying to capture that, again, N64 uh, collectathon vibe since they pioneered it in a lot of ways with Banjo-Kazooie and uh, Donkey Kong 64. But ukulele, I think, failed in a lot of ways. The levels were too big, and there was a sort of strange progression to them that didn't really feel like you were making a lot of progress at like moment to moment where whereas banjo kazooie and less so banjo tooie and even less so uh, donkey kong 64 it felt like each of the levels were this distinct sort of area they had their own vibe they had their own amazing soundtrack obviously but it felt like you could beat a level and be like done for the day and you felt like you accomplished something and you didn't really get that with ukulele but the sequel they instead went even further back and they just made a donkey kong country it's like straight up the same physics as the OG trilogy on SNES. And I like it more than Returns or Tropical Freeze because those games have what feels to me bad physics. And I do not like actively controlling the characters in those games. So Ukulele Impossible Air has a similar sort of conceit to Tropical Freeze. Not necessarily, but there are two different versions of each of the levels. So you'll do something on the overworld to affect the book that you're jumping into. Like this is very, you know, N64, that era uh, conceit. But you jump into books and you go into the level. But if the book gets submerged in water, then suddenly the, the level itself is underwater. If there's wind blowing across the book, then it'll be a windy level in like this changed up version of it. So they squeeze a lot out of these uh, design levels and sort of double dip on them. But it feels unique and interesting and challenging to play through them two different times. And if you spread it out the way I did, then... It ends up being a really good sort of variety and not too long of a game. I, it's, I mean, I put about 20 hours into it. So that's actually pretty long compared to how much that's a lot of time. Game. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of game. That's like, I mean, it's 40 levels, I think. Wow. And uh, I spent a lot of time just on pause screens because it's uh, Grant Kirkhope. And I think maybe even like a David Wise yeah. track or two. I'm not sure. Whoa. But it's just got, you know, jolly ass vibes. I mean, straight up. Grant Kirkhope is like the Danny Elfman of video game composers. Like he just has such a distinct sort of flavor and if that's what you're into you're going to be bopping along and it's all great pretty short game i would i i beat that game for less than 10 hours easily i played it when i was sick um earlier last year and it was just a a really nice sort of romp through history in the past and i did similar things when donkey kong and donkey kong country 2 came out and the snas online but yeah do recommend um also pick back up super monkey ball uh, the HD remasters of the first two games. Um, I picked them up for a song on a switch. It was like 15 or 20 bucks. Like I, I couldn't pass up on that. I mean, I love, I love that game. The first one particularly, and it has such a fun multiplayer. So it was just like a, a strange era for Sega after the death of the dreamcast. And they're putting, this is a launch game. The first game was a launch game on GameCube. And it's just this strange sort of like, physics ball rolling game with these monkeys with the classic like Sega arcade person shouting winner and go at the start of the level and the end of the level. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. And you're hearing the monkey screams and you're going to hear those monkeys scream a lot because you're going to fall off the stage a hundred times while you like kill yourself trying to get this one perfect weird jump that you're not supposed to do, but you are supposed to do, but you kind of aren't. It's just broken and weird. Love that game. Uh, I need to play some of the multiplayer stuff with you guys. I have to bring it with me to the beach. Oh my god! So we can god. do what monkey flight is the is the I can't remember. And there's monkey boxing. I mean, there's so many like weird little party games that are just hilarious. 
it, it is rage inducing in in the best way. Yeah, and I'm not sure what um it seems like the only real add-ons are like leaderboard stuff, which makes sense for a game like this where it's so time chased heavy. And then like weird cosmetic stuff. I remember there being a pre-order bonus. I can't remember if it was for this one or for another. They did a re-release of like one of the Wii versions, but there was one where you could put like uh Kiryu from the Yakuza games in the ball. Like he was a, a guy you could put in the ball or like the dream, like one of their consoles, like either the Dreamcast or the, the Saturn was just floating in the ball instead of, you know, I, I or Kiki or whatever the other characters are. Anyway, it's a weird game. I would recommend it though. Um, EJ, this is a game that you first showed me. I don't know how interested in it you were at the time, but you're like, yo, check this out. This game on the Xbox one it was the first time I held the Xbox one controller and it was Ori in the blind forest. And so I picked that back up because I like the sequel quite a bit. And I had just been meaning to get around to playing this because it's so like highly regarded and it's stunning it's beautiful and they ported it to switch and they actually improved it in a lot of ways for the switch release like they they touched it up and it's it runs really well on the platform and i don't think i'm going to continue through with it i played about six hours and the gameplay from what i can tell seems like a straight downgrade from the sequel so anything that you would want from the ori games i would just recommend playing the sequel instead like there's weird there's like combat but it's not really combat because you have this like floating little navvy kind of character around you and you just mash a bumper and it just auto fires to an enemy that's nearby there's no like agency over combat in that way it's more just like a way to i don't know get rid of threats that are around you it's it's not it's not interesting in like a combat sense and then traversal it just it feels okay like i got a wall jump and you do some fun little things with the getting around the environment you go into the you, you go in the place you can't get out of the place because you got to get the upgrade then you get the upgrade and you get out of the place like it's that writ large several times it's so hard to go back it always feels impossible and i would say it's fairly rare for indie games to get like straight sequels and if they are better than the first one then like almost always you could skip the first one especially this like the story is so not important but it, like it's there and it's nice it's like this sort of storybook kind of telling it's it's got your favorite thing ej the fake language narrator and so there's text popping up on screen you're like oh boy or he's got he's the seed of this light tree and the light tree is not alive anymore so you got to go revive the light tree because whatever and your friend that was raising you is dead so you're sad but then you got to go do the game so i don't know i mean it's just it's whatever story and the sequel follows up on that, presumably because I recognize some of the characters, quote unquote. I mean, the silhouettes of these things that are on screen. But that's the, the extent of the storytelling in that game. And that pretty much leads us up to the direct last week where I just hopped into Game Boy and Game Boy Advance. And I think oh, EJ, yeah. you probably want to talk a little bit about oh, Game Boy. Oh, yeah, buddy. I messed around a lot with the Game Boy, Game Boy Advance the last couple of days. Dude, my list of games I've been playing... Like, we won't even touch on half of these. I've platinumed 11 games. And not just, like, not, no My Name is Mayo bullshit. Like, real games since Warzone died at the, was that, middle of November. So, like, I've been playing a lot. And mostly a lot of online multiplayer, which I want to try out, by the way, on some of the Game Boy Advance games. Even if they are shitty games like Mario Kart. Super Circuit! <laughs> you just try it out. I know we joked about it last time. <laughs> I, that game feels so bad. 
so bad. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about like the video filters and you know yada yada, but you know I've been playing Mario Land two like I'll play a level before bed right when I'm done playing Fire Emblem I'll do a level or two. I know it's a really short game, but I like just bopping around, die once or twice, beat a level or two, and it's like nice. I am just blown That's such away. A vibe. It is. <laughs> I cannot believe that that is on. I mean, there are people who are playing on their freaking pea green Game Boys, and it it is. This might be an exaggeration, but it almost feels better than some of the Game Boy Advance ports of Super Nintendo Mario games. And I don't know if that's just a function of being made for the platform. I just was blown away, and I said it last week, but I I, I played Mario Land one. I tried to speed run Mario Land one years and years ago, and Nick, you've said before that's like the least like a Mario game of any Mario game pretty much ever it's barely a mario game you stomp on a koopa and they leave bombs behind what the hell's up with that <laughs> hanging out in the sphinx land in egypt come on it's very bizarre and mario There's shooter levels he's like <laughs> three pixels tall egregious but it's a mario game in that like you're jumping on enemies and you're going side to side and jumping on things and platforming the way that you would in, in any other mario game but just the night and day difference between mario land one and two I, it blows me away it's full sprites it feels the great. The physics are right. Yeah. The physics are so perfect. It feels, it just feels good. You know exactly where you're going to land. You know exactly how high you're going to go. Like, that's it. That's it. That's that chef's kiss from a platformer, especially a Mario game. They did more interesting shit in this than they've done in most of the three-dimensional Mario platformers in the last, like, 15 to 20 years. Chronologically, it was the last good 2D platformer Mario. Yep. Wait a minute. Is there no love here for new Super Mario Bros? It's okay. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel right. Like I played it to completion, beat every level. It's fine. Which one? There's the DS one. The Wii one is awesome. The Wii U one, less so. I guess I got ported to Switch. I played all three of them to completion. They're fine. It's never hooked me. It's the same recycled five environments on three it's different Mario. consoles. But look what Mario Land 2 does. You're in fucking space land where you can jump infinitely because there's no gravity and Mario's got legs of steel and you could like well, a whole level in a turtle and a whole world where you're inside a giant robotic Mario suit like like this big robot Mario monster like they dreamt so big on that in a way that they just literally have not done since then, in my opinion, except for Odyssey, except for Odyssey where they were like, we're going to really we're going to go to some places. We're going to really flesh these worlds out. I like Galaxy Shtick. I think it was a little bit tired by the time 2 came out. But yeah, the 2D Marios have been kind of a failure as far as innovating thematically, I guess. Sure. I played a little bit of Super Mario Advance 4, which is Super Mario Bros. 3 from the NES. It's so funny that you can play three different Mario Bros. 3s on Switch Online alone. Right. Well, I, I played it on the Game Boy Advance version, and then I was like, Wait, why would I play this version? And so I went back. I booted up the NES and played the NES version. Or you could hop into play All Stars. Super Mario All Stars. <laughs> oh my God! What the fuck? Um, I also played Kudu Kudu Kududin. That game rules, it's dude. It's so weird, man. It's so like the whole premise, obviously, being you you were just controlling this little baton that just rotates clockwise. Uh. Or it can go either direction, but like you're just yeah. trying to basically rotate him to like fit through these ridiculous pathways. If you hit the wall, it's like a time-based thing, right? You're trying to beat the clock, and if every time you hit a wall, it's like plus three seconds. That feeling you get of playing Operation, where you buzz the side and you're like, "Fuck!" 
Like it startles you. That's what you get in this fucking game. You're like, no, it's just, it's very tense. You know me, I'm like speed run brain. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I got to beat all the time trials. I got to beat the, whatever the ghost time on this thing and try to start speed running these levels. I'm out, dude. That shit's hard. That is, you have to be like flawless. You, you literally cannot mess up at all. Being flawless is one thing, but then being flawless and getting every angle right the first time, you cannot miss a beat. You can't go two rotations around waiting to line up. You have to just go. It's hard. I'll never beat that game, but it's a cool ass game. It didn't come out in America, right? No, it came out in Japan and I think Europe. And then there were, I think there was a sequel on Wii which might have only been Japan. I'm not entirely sure on that, but that's why there's an English there's an English dub is because Europe. I didn't really play anything else. I really do want to jump into Zelda. I know I'm just not a big Zelda guy, but apparently I'm a big Zelda guy when the aesthetics are like something wholly unique and adorable. So or fully pulled from Wind Waker because that's this era of Zelda on the handhelds. This predated Wind Waker, didn't it? No. No. This is like 2004. 0405, I think, was the trademark listings on the uh, title screen. So it came out in Japan and Europe in November 2004. Wow. Okay. I guess in my mind, I associate like the Wind Waker sequels as being Spirit Tracks and yeah, and Phantom Hourglass being the the next Zelda games after Wind Waker. Yeah, and Minish Cap is strange too because it has a lot of tie-ins with uh, Four Sword Adventure as well. Yeah. Right. Which also, which also fully like was taking that Toon Link sort of design and like running with it. I mean, Minish Cap isn't related to Wind Waker in like the story, just sort of the art style. Yeah, yeah. So I've got two things going on, and how I'm evaluating like what I'm going to play next. Right. One is now I'm trying to go through and hit games that are on our top 100. So I'm playing Castle Crashers right now, which also ties into the other piece of criteria is I'm trying to platinum trophies. games. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sick in the head, man. I'm trying to grind the trophies out. Also, the third thing is like Brendan and I have been playing a lot of of online co-op. So like we were playing the We Were Here series. We played Operation Tango. We played A Way Out and It Takes Two, which, okay, you know what? I want to talk about Castle Crashers, Nick, because it's on our top 100, but let me just let me just go on this little rant real quick. Sure. Did, did either of you play A Way Out or It Takes no. Two? Okay, so we played It Takes Two first. It Takes Two won Game of the Year in 2021. Over Metroid Dread. Over Metroid Dread. It only reviewed better than one game, and I think that game was actually Metroid Dread. Every other game in the pool, it reviewed worse than. Um, like Psychonauts, Resident Evil. People say it was a weak year for games, but maybe it was in totality. But for this to have one blows me away. It was a fun game. The whole like premise... Is like this little girl's parents are getting divorced, so she's crying, and she magically turns them into little dolls. And so now you're, you know, it's Toy Story, right? And you're traversing these environments, uh, which I'm always a sucker for, you know, like shrink things small and and get a whole new perspective totally. on the world. The world designs were really interesting. Every level had its own shtick, and it starts off slow, right? You're just grappling onto things. You're swinging around. And then it's like you have a nail gun and you're like shooting nails for your partner to hook through and they can start hooking and swinging across. And so you're solving these environmental puzzles together. Dude, that game was like 10 hours too long. They spent way too much time in the damn story with these horrifying face models for these actors. But what did you think of Dr. Hakim? It got to a point like less than one third of the way through the game that as soon as the fucking 
creepy book came on screen, we both hit circle to skip. We anytime he showed his face, we skipped the cutscene. <laughs> it was it completely overstayed its welcome so quickly. I'm like, I don't care about this story. I don't care. Uh, and this is a theme that when I when I talk about a way out, this is a theme that like whoever is directing these games, whoever's the head of that studio, th- there's a lot they're working through. It's the fuck the Oscars guy. Exactly. The fuck the Oscars guy. I should Brennan didn't know about that. I sent that to him when we were playing a way out. Classic all time game awards bit. There's a lot that dude must be working through that he should be seeing a therapist about, but instead he's putting it in these games and they turn into these weird, like really one note, cringy fantasies of like my parents got divorced. And if only I could have got them to say, I love you. They would have stayed together forever. Happy ending for everyone. And it's so awful. And you see these tropes of like, Oh, the parents, they work together and they cracked a joke. They love each other again. There are a lot of cool mechanics in, in sort of the interplay between what, the male character and what the female character could do. There are a lot of mini games, which is fucking awesome for guys like Brennan and I who are extremely competitive. There was like 30 mini games or something, and it kept Jeez. score of who won. Anything from tug of war to literal a game of chess to different sort of racing. Uh, and there's trophies for finding every mini game. So so we got really into that. But like, what a travesty that that one game of the year. That, that just blew me away. That's shocking to me. It's a good game. Don't get me wrong. Professor Contrarian's activating here a little bit, and I'm like, well, now I need to see for myself. You do. No, you and Tiffany would probably have a lot of fun playing it. I bet we would. It does a lot of unique things. The levels are are too long at a certain point. I got really tired of the shticks. Like, every level has its own platforming mechanics, and they introduce something new where you just kind of like, hey, I, I was just really getting into the swing of things with that last mechanic. Please don't take it away. And it's new level, new mechanics. You got to learn the whole thing. And they get increasingly convoluted. Like by the end, you're like, okay, they're running out of ideas here. They, they just, they had to keep it fresh every level and they don't know how. Uh, but they're fun boss fights. Like it's a good game. It's in, and as far as like couch co-op and the online co-op, the online was amazing. Never once had a stutter, never had a freeze, never had a drop, uh, which is really, really refreshing. Uh, we've been playing a lot of co-op games online and they they are not all made equal. But we went back to A Way Out, which, Nick, if you remember when that that whole, you know, fuck the Oscars, and they showed that game at the Game Awards, and I was like, dude, I kind of want to play that game. It looked like a Euro B-tier game, top to bottom to me. <laughs> that is generous. Wow. They must have some people in the industry in their pocket because they are punching way above their fucking weight class. Like, the fact that A Way Out got a 79... I, I it's it's a two, like a two hour game. I, I wish you guys would just experience it so you you would know the horror and the pain that Brennan and I went through. The characters control terribly. The puzzles are not interesting. It's this like really surface level ripoff of every possible Prison Break story you could imagine. And you have these awful actors going back and forth in these scenes that you do not care about. But the problem with this game versus It Takes Two is at least in It Takes Two, you wanted to get back to the fun stuff. This game, you're like, I don't know if I'd rather watch these schmucks talk or if I want to go back to like awkwardly bumbling around trying to hit circle on different objects in the world. Pushing a laundry cart. <laughs> oh my God. It got to the point where we got the platinum. We didn't even finish the story. We we backed out and deleted the game as soon as we popped the platinum. We, we don't know how that game ended. Uh, and we don't care because it was so awful. So the fact that that guy, I think it has a 79 
an open critic. It's really funny that you can get the platinum without finishing. Yeah, the game. what the hell? Like, how does that even work? Also, you gave me a Vietnam flashback when you were talking about bad puzzle design because holy shit, are the puzzles in Fallen Order terrible? And they're like, we'll do really interesting physics-based puzzles with you force pushing these fucking spheres, <laughs> and they're all bad. All of them are terrible. You see why I'm not a puzzle guy? Every time I suffer through a game with puzzles, it always ends up being awful. You know what has great puzzles? You know what has great, interesting, atmospheric puzzles? Nick knows what I'm going to say. Does it start with an M? It starts with an M. <laughs> That's Metroid Prime. <laughs> I pre-ordered on Amazon. Dude, that game sold oh, out man. everywhere. And rightfully so. It's a fucking masterpiece. I can't wait for you to please. Listeners, dear listeners, all 32 of you or whatever, there will be a Metroid Prime Remastered response cast ej olsen is picking up the controller at last and playing this seminal piece of nintendo i will i'm gonna suffer it out for chris i'm gonna suffer it out for the top 100 list but all of that to say i i am overall pretty disappointed with what hazel light brings to the table i think that's the studio name the fact that i got a 79 on a way out is mind-blowing that game is like a 48 I went in with these high expectations, the anticipation. I looked at the reviews. I'm like, okay, a game in the 70s. This will be a fun little you know, thing for us to do. No. There's like awkward cover shooting sections, and there's a car chase, but like you have such limited control. It wants to be all these things, but it's basically just an on-rail press square type of game. And like the puzzles are, are more or less just like, all right, walk around and find the thing. Nope, go find it in the right order, though. And so you're just walking slowly, tapping X or tapping square or whatever. And then it takes two, a solid 80, a really refreshing and unique multiplayer game. How the fuck did it win game of the year? So you know what? Good on them because they are consistently punching above their weight class, like I said. And maybe people just like the fuck the Oscars guys so much that they, you know, they have some sort of internal <laughs> bias. Well, 21 was a weird year. There was a lot of like, okay to good games that got a lot more shine than they would have gotten in a, another year. Resident Evil Village, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, Psychonauts 2, Metroid Dread, Deathloop, and It Takes Two were the nominees for Game of the Year that year. I have played Deathloop, Dread, uh, and Ratchet and Clank. Brennan played Resident Evil Village, and It Takes Two. The conclusion we both came to is there is just no reason for this to have gotten any votes over any of these games that year. <laughs> and it must have been like a COVID hangover thing. It you know, seemed like it was Deathloop's award to win. Like we were all going into that. We were all sure that that was going to be the game of the year winner. I don't know if it was that clear to me. Like Metroid, could, I mean, it could have easily taken it. Psychonauts reviewed in the 90s. Ratchet and Clank got 89, like, and is a, a Sony exclusive. So, it, it, I mean, it could have been anyone's game here. The fact that it was, it takes two. I mean, talk about a come from behind. Talk about a, a puncher's chance. And boy, they punched. Yeah, split the vote. <laughs> Yeah, Gosh. no kidding. Maybe it's one of those like, uh, oh, what was it that they're? Oh, and the the NFL is doing tiered voting for the first time for their for their awards that you don't just submit one person, you submit three. So the guy who won Offensive Rookie of the Year, who admittedly is a good receiver, the guy with the New York Jets, uh, Garrett Wilson, uh, received less first place votes than the guy who finished second. But the guy who finished second had less second and third place votes. He was on less overall ballots that tabulated into the win for this guy. So just like it could have been a little quirk like that. I don't know if they do like submit your top five. I think that's what they do for nominations. And then for the actual voting for winners, like it the is Oscars. a single vote. Yeah. yeah, That happened to Charles Barkley one year, I think, 
uh, Chris, the year he won MVP is he had fewer first place votes than Michael Jordan, but because he had more second and third place votes and the way the point system works that like he ended up taking the MVP. It's just, it's a silly way to do awards. It is a dumb way to do awards. And it's uh, also don't get me started on uh, awards voters just in general. (laughs) They get bored with consistent excellence and it's really an award for like which surprising person had a really good season because otherwise LeBron James would have like eight MVP awards rightfully should have like eight MVP awards or like the Oscars which is like (laughs) so niche in their tastes oh I don't think they're niche enough that's a whole different conversation though the the top 10 films that they shat out in the best picture category this year are fucking hilarious to me for so many bad nominations we'll talk about it yeah there's so many (laughs) better films that are not on that list but it, it, it neither here nor there I have put maybe 10 hours into Minish Cap and I haven't played Minish Cap before. Are you liking Chris, it? You've, you've played all the way through Minish Cap, correct? I played it to completion. I thought it was great. Yeah, Minish Cap's a great time. Um, Probably underrated. I don't know what the general consensus is, but this is easily better than Link to the Past. It's a good fucking game. Like, it's really well designed. Yeah. The shrinking system is really well implemented in terms of how you can continue to, like, explore and re-explore and find new stuff. And it's great how it recontextualizes the world and you know it's it's it does the things that every great 2d zelda game should do and it does it well and i don't know i just the music's really good the dungeons are not like too beefy but yeah if anything they might be a little bit too long but i do like a nice brief uh dungeon especially in a 2d zelda game link's awakening scratches that edge for me so thoroughly that it's hard to compare but yeah, I would put this in the sort of echelon of the Oracle games. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Oracles dropping on Game Boy. That was one of their like featured coming soon things in the Nintendo Direct. And that for sure is going to be a game diary like we are playing. We'll agree on which one we want to do together and then I'm going to play both of them. I'll probably end up playing at hmm, I don't know which one I'll prioritize. They're both way too long for what they are. I mean, they're they've got a lot of filler from the last time I was playing them, but yeah, I'd be down to play at least one of them. I remember as a kid playing those games and like not knowing what to do, or where to go. You know, I'm like six years old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like these arcane systems and world design. And I'm just like, uh, Pokemon's easy. It just tells you what to choose and then you do it. Like, Yeah, I would say the main problem for the Oracle games is that they are designed in such a way that they totally presume that, oh, you've played a Zelda game. Let's do the Zelda thing. And like, twist that even more than what you would do in, in other Zelda games. Like you get, I can't remember if it's, I think it might be seasons where you get, or they might even both have this item, but they, you get a hook shot, but instead of hook shotting yourself to the item, you switch places with the item and they have puzzle elements based on that. And it's like, it breaks your brain. And if you're like not used to playing Zelda games at all, then I don't know how you would sort of try to square that circle. But I mean, for me as a person who's played a lot of Zelda games it's like oh this is a really cool twist on that like well-trodden territory that's what I'm saying here they turned it up to 11 and the fact that you could the the password system that these games could interact with each other when you finish them you could start like second versions of the game that they would inform each other and there's like a true ending that you can only get by having beaten both of the games exchange the passwords with each other and gotten like specific items you can only get by doing that. It's I mean, like, I love that. Just that like weird little niche. Nobody's going to do this, but I did it. And I love that they left that right there for us. It would have been cool to get the, the third game in the 
proposed trilogy, but they squeeze a lot of blood from the Link's Awakening stone by using a lot of the same character models and importing a lot of the same like uh, character tropes of the Gorons and the Zora from Ocarina specifically and the music. And it, it just is a really cool sort of vibe. And the guy who directed those games is now directing Zelda. So apparently Nintendo liked it too. Early on in the Game Boy's life, you know, Nintendo famously with Pokemon selling two versions of the game, and they've done this with countless franchises since then. Ages and Seasons are not the same game. There is nothing about them that are the same except for like the visuals. Absolutely. They did them. They did it a disservice by releasing them on the same day. Like they shouldn't have done that. It communicates to the, the consumer like, oh, this is just another Pokemon. Right. Which is cool that, that these developers get a, a directive from the studio being like, hey, we're going to like release versions of the game and they're like no we're gonna make two different games and like chris you said the interplay between those and and how the stories sync up and being able to actually like have an incentive to beat both games and and then yeah watch that you know it, it gives it a a reason for both of them to exist yeah dude that's fucking great there are two more things i want to touch on before we jump into last of us there's a lot more games on my list that i, I just deleted we talked about fire emblem last time so i won't go into that um I did Platinum Overcooked, All You Can Eat, the the new, uh, the most recent like collection of all the Overcooked content. Fuck that game was good. That should have that should have made our top one hundred. That might be my favorite couch co op game ever. Just the difficulty and like just how unique it is. And speaking to me as like someone who has worked as a cook and who loves to cook to this day, like just the the adorable like different restaurant settings and all the different recipes. And it's just one of those things that's got like a high level of cooperation, a high difficulty level if you're trying to triple star every level or quadruple star uh, as you unlock a new game plus. And wow, that's difficult. Nick, I, I wish I wish you hadn't committed to the bit because uh, although to be fair, you do say you when you play games with your friends, you like to have fun, not be frustrated at your friends. And so that maybe maybe it's just not a game that you would want to play with a bunch of people. I understand. That depends. Did they backport the throwing into Overcooked One then with no, this version? No, sadly not. Yeah, it would probably ruin the the timing of everything. They'd have to like redo all of like the metrics for success if they had that. Yeah, that was fun. But anyway, Castle Crashers, like I mentioned earlier, is on our top one hundred and is a great couch co op game. And and Brendan and I have been grinding the platinum on that. So it's a couple playthroughs. It's a new game plus run up to a certain point, collecting all the animal orbs. You know. Brendan got frustrated at a few points and especially towards the end, there was like a, a pretty significant difficulty spike and the final boss is like extremely obnoxious. Yeah. DPS check city for sure. I, I'm playing this game like delighted. Like the music is wonderful. Every level has such like unique music and it goes from like adorable cartoony, like medieval stuff to like fucking techno rage to like, it just does so much. Dude, the ninja pirates theme <laughs> is an all time bop. <laughs> I mean, this is a 15-year-old game. Yeah, total Newgrounds fair. Exactly. So, but but through his frustrations, I, I thought to myself, like, why haven't we gotten a sequel to this game after 15 years? It's so beloved. And, and I'm starting to realize why. I mean, they, they made a few other games. They did Battle Block Theater, which is a really fun co-op game, sort of a, a platform puzzler. But I've always wondered, why the fuck haven't we gotten a sequel to this game? We haven't even gotten a physical version of this game. It's so... Such weird treatment for a game that is considered one of like the all-time indie darlings. So important to like the role of indie games in the game space. 
in the modern day, you know, with its place on, on Xbox marketplace. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm starting to realize like, Oh, it would be really hard to make a compelling sequel. I mean, the game has a lot of issues that I've never noticed before. Like hitboxes are janky and they can fix that. The perspective. Sometimes you get really frustrated in the world trying to like, you know, spatially how, where are you in relation to enemies on screen? Cause it's, it's side scrolling, but you can move vertically in this space and, and it's not accurate enough. Sometimes you just get confused or, or you're trying to hit somebody and you're hitting nothing. But I'm like, they're, they're, they're right there. My weapon is passing through them. How is it not activating their hitbox? Yeah, I got to line up those shadows. And maybe now it's been so long that you could just do a game that's sort of hackneyed, like nostalgia, you know, and they probably realize what I'm now realizing. Like, yeah, that game was one in a million and it exists as it exists. And it would do nothing but like cheapen the experience to do a proper sequel. What I would want is a sequel, but not in the same genre. Oh, interesting. What would that look like? Any fun multiplayer game? I don't know. Or it doesn't have to be multiplayer. You could do like a Castle Crashers Paper Mario ripoff. I mean, you could do anything oh, with just cool. those cute little guys. There's, there, there's no story. It's just some, the princess got stolen by this wizard and you're these knights. And there's like slapstick comedy. Yeah, you're just hacking and slashing. And there's a lot the game doesn't do well in terms of like explaining how you should build a character and the interplay between, okay, I want my agility up so I can use my arrows. Does my strength increase the DPS of my arrow? And agility just affects the speed at which I can fire and the distance that the arrows go. It doesn't explain those sort of things. It's very early beat em up revival. Right. Like beat em ups, if you think about it, they weren't like 2D games were hardly even a genre until indies revived them again. And beat em ups sort of fell into that purview. So Castle Crashers was sort of positioned in a unique place where people hadn't played a co op beat em up game since online gaming was a thing. And then now that here's this one for $15 on Xbox Live Arcade and everyone's picking it up because it's 2008 and there's nothing better to play for that price on that platform. So I don't think if Castle Crashers came out like two years after when it did come out, it would not have the same cachet as it does. Sure. It's just, you have the nostalgia for it now. Like you have nostalgia for this game that came out on the 360. Totally. That's kind of, kind of weird, but yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I see where Brandon's coming from. I mean, the music is great. The progression is a little stilted and the jokes are funny, but they get old fast, especially if you're failing over and over fighting the stupid cat boss in the river or wherever your pain points are. Yeah, and then the new game plus is a whole other Oh my god, yeah, it's it's a pain. I mean, you tough. have to grind. You got to grind cash, yeah. you got to grind levels, and that's like not necessarily fun. No, not at all. And the progression system of like all right, if you've beat the game with a certain character, if you want to restart that with a friend who's playing a, a new character, all the levels are unlocked. You're not really playing the game for the first time. The map's unlocked, and you have to manually go to every spot on the level. You have to manually go pick up the little keys that unlock the next area, even if you don't have to beat the level to get the key. It's Yeah, there's some weird stuff that comes with that. And it's still a fun-ass game. Like, we're having fun with it. It's just a trophy grind that there are things that you kind of beat your head against. And and there are new game modes now. Oh, yeah. the tur- Like, the was it? Quaff something? There's, like, the tile thing. It's called Back Off Barbarian. Back off barbarian is another one. There's another one where it's like a it's like a rhythm game about eating food. Oh, eating! Oh, I don't know what that is. Eating food. I remember the word quaff because it's a fun word to remember. You should look that up because there's only three modes in the remastered. There's Castle Crashers. There's arena mode, which is just versus another player. Maybe it was only on the 360. 
Maybe. All you can quaff as a minigame on the 360 version of Castle Crashers and the sentence after the first paragraph is, the minigame has since been removed in every single version after the Xbox 360 version due to disinterest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It looks like you just press the X and Y buttons to eat food in front of you and then you would press the A button to ring a bell to get more food. So a very, very minimal minigame. Baby, that's just my Tuesday. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, back off barbarian is it's it's this isometric like game board. You're basically like a little game uh piece and you have a grid and it is like a rhythm game in that like whichever direction you want to move on the grid, a direction will pop up. It's not the direction you want to go usually, so you're as those boxes pop up with an arrow, you're, you know, DDRing the freaking Yeah, pressing corresponding buttons and and trying to keep your uh keep your piece away from the enemy pieces as they drop in. And, and I think one of the trophies is you have to last for like two and a half minutes. The best I've done is like a buck 57. And it's it's so hard. I don't know if I'm going to be able to actually do it. I've grinded this whole game out. And this is going to be the last trophy I need. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. You're talking about playing Overcooked and having some maybe regret or wanting to uh, relitigate. Maybe adding this to our top 100. That was the vibe I was getting. Maybe we can come back to that list on a yearly basis. And sure. Do some additions and removals and sort of hash things out. And I've got a feeling that Chris is also maybe wanting to uh, make an addition of himself considering I see you playing this game all the goddamn time, Chris. Just on like your I check. I see who's online on my switch and I see, oh, Chris is playing Hades again. So tell me about that. <laughs> it's literally all I'm playing. And I, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it in depth because I want to wait until I have a more settled feeling overall with it. Is this my next PS5 game so that we can talk about it? Do I need to add, just add this to the queue? I really think you should. Uh, and I okay. think that you need to commit to like at least 25 attempts to try to get out of the underworld, which is okay. a lot okay. less playtime than you think it is because the way that this narrative unfolds uh i've never seen anything like it from a roguelike uh i um yeah but i wanna i've made three successful escape attempts so far um i've gotten to be pretty good with most of the weapons i think i've had a bad choice on what i did with the shield when i could start like subclassing the the weapons so to speak uh so i kind of have to go back to the drawing board with that one but yeah, I just I don't I, I I could see that there's a lot more that this game has that I still want to experience before I weigh in on it, but I I see no reason why this shouldn't be on the list. I think it's it's one of the better things I've played in, in quite some time. What is it your brother said first thing when you showed him the top one hundred list? Oh, something like how in God's name is Hades not on here, but Dead Cells is something like that. I don't like that it has to be one or the other because they're different games. They're both roguelites, but they're different. But we had discussed like when we were thinking about like ranking and cutting some things like, do we need this many roguelikes? And I think we we cut one or ranked one pretty low. Maybe it was, I don't remember which one it was that we we either took off the list completely. I gave Risk of Rain the axe. That's what it was. It was Risk of Rain that we're like, I don't know how many of these we need. Uh, but it is all I am playing other than like a quick, literally like two hour side detour to smash out six golden coins, uh, to completion, which was sort of like, wow, Game Boy games. 
not the content I remember from being a child when it's like, I could play this forever because I'm bad at video games and I die all the time. And now I could just save scum my way through levels. And I'm like, this is fucking easy. <laughs> Rewind. I only really save scummed Wario's castle. It's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this all the way through. This is stupid. I'm 32 years old. I got better fucking things to do with my time. Um, but it's a, literally all I've been playing. I'm mesmerized by this game in a way that I have not been in a long, long time. And I'm glad I'm getting this now so that when the sequel comes out, give me that at launch, please. Uh, but I want to, I will, I will talk about that in like a week or, or two weeks or something, depending on when I feel like I'm, I'm ready to talk about it, but it's fucking sure. fantastic. I'll add it to the queue. Um, we, Brendan and I are trying to finish grinding out uh, the fourth in the, we were here series. We, we platinum the first two. We skipped the third one because uh, the new one had like literally just come out. I think the term for those would be asynchronous puzzlers. I don't know if you've heard of this particular uh, franchise, Nick. Just what you have told me. And then I looked it up and I was like, hmm, yeah, there's three or four of these. Okay. <laughs> like the first one especially is is like it drops you and your partner in the same world, but you're, you, you're not interacting with each other. And you're basically relaying what you're seeing to your partner to solve these puzzles and everything from like, you know, you're pulling levers in a maze to like get out of the maze, but your partner has the map and all you have is what you can see in front of you. And so you're describing like symbols and pictures on the wall and the environment you're in. And he's trying to decipher your clues to guide you. The variety of puzzles is, is quite wide. And we played the first one, the second one, and we skipped the third one and, and played the newest one. The newest one is actually Pretty good that the like there's a lot of like environmental puzzles that you have to solve together. We're actually in the same room looking at the same things, and then it, it'll sp split you off for a puzzle, and it's back to the sort of traditional like I'm describing the thing I'm seeing. You're trying to decipher the clues so that you can relay the instructions to me on how to solve the puzzle. They've been fun. They've been frustrating. There's definitely been some frustration as because because you're trying to you have such limited information, and it's it all hinges on how well you can describe what you're seeing. And your partner to interpret that and like fit that into what he's seeing. And you guys are just bouncing back and forth. We had played a game very similar to it called Operation Tango. Uh, you're, you're one character is a spy and one is a hacker. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't that, isn't that like kind of stealth combined with the puzzle? Uh, a little bit. There are, there are sections where you're like, yeah, you're trying not to get caught by a drone or a person. Trying to blend in. And, and that was really interesting too. Games like that are hard to really knock out of the park because there's always going to be some sort of jank with different mechanics. Operation Tango in particular was so interesting because, you know, I played the spy first. I'm I'm in a 3D environment. I'm a character. I'm interacting with a 3D world. And I didn't realize what Brennan is saying the whole time. He is just, he's in a computer. He's seeing bits and blocks and he's interacting with a computer navigation menu. And so we're trying to solve these things you know, I'm 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 exploring an apartment or an office building and trying to be like, all right, I have to get into this elevator, but I can only get in this elevator if I have like an appointment with somebody on the third floor. So I need you to like go into the system and figure out how to do that. So we're both solving our own puzzles to figure out how to come together and solve the like overarching puzzle. Yeah, there's one in particular where you're like trying to uh, decrypt people's phones and like figure out based on like two descriptors who the mark is in this like scheme these hackers are running and you're trying to figure out who it is and you're going to like every person on the train and trying to hack their phone and it turns into like a runaway train thing and now you're doing these these crazy puzzles like 
trying to get the brakes to work. And so you're like concocting uh, like chemicals to make brake fluid. And, and you're going through the series of like, there's a timer and you're trying to describe, okay, you're creating this compound and you needed to go, here are the buttons on the controller you have to press in this order. And then it's like, stop, just like chaotic. And you have to be precise and you have to be fast. And there's that sense of, motherfucker, you're not going quick enough. You're not fucking going quick enough. Oh, we're going to die. We, we die. We got, we got to go all the way back to the beginning of this puzzle. And so that that frantic, you have to be precise and not an idiot, which is hard for me to do. It, but we got through it. It was a lot of fun. I would highly recommend. It's a whole like genre that I didn't know existed. That's interesting. I, I like the idea of it being two distinct sort of gameplay styles, depending on which role you're in. That That sounds interesting to me but maybe not in a way that i would actually want to actively participate in trying to think of who would i play this game with because i would need somebody that on the other end like you couldn't play it on the couch with tiffany well right exactly that but also that they're gonna need to be okay with me getting like urgent (laughs) well not even necessarily heated but just urgent and knowing that that's not like frustration or irritation or pissed offness but it's just like we have to do this thing because my like urgent tone is often misinterpreted as upset when it's not. And I'm like, I, I, I feel nothing for you specifically negatively right now. We just need to do this thing. And we need to do it right now. And I'm being really matter of fact with you. And that, that <laughs> yeah. can put some people into a place of like, whoa, what's going on? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I just need you to do this thing. Like, I'm just letting you know, like, yeah. this is the thing I need you to do. <laughs> totally. And I play that role with Brendan most of the time. And, and I get pretty frustrated easily. Like, I'm like, this shouldn't be that difficult until the roles are reversed. And then you realize like, oh, this is what you were seeing that whole time. This is crazy. How did you even decipher what I was saying to you? You know, EJ, are you and Brennan doing like couples therapy? Is that what this is? Dude, we <laughs> joked about it. Like all these frustrating <laughs> games. Then we play it takes two. And we're like, we're, we're, we're processing a lot of our own relationship through this game right now. <laughs> like, like post war zone frustration. And and trying to find a new outlet that isn't going to tear us apart. Is, exactly is Warzone it. your child that graduated high school and has moved to college? <laughs> Warzone is the stepfather who taught us all of the bad things that we took into our romantic relationships and haven't been able to to get away from. <laughs> and now we're trying to work through all the things that we learned from him so that we can be happy together. You're unlearning the mistakes that Call of Duty taught you. Exactly. So... Anyway, that's a lot. That's a lot. Let's jump into Last of Us. Yeah. Episode five, the world building in this one. So so we open up on this rebel group. This is like 10 days prior to episode four where we met Kathleen, right? We open up on the rebel group overthrowing Fedra. Chris, what did this do for you right off the bat? Sort of confirmed what we all maybe were feeling last time, which is that this is not necessarily a great thing just to have like handed power over to another group. That's like functionally engaging in a lot of the same tactics, like seeing people being literally like hung from trees, seeing people like being drugged through the streets with knives and then being beaten and like brutally executed. I'm like, this does not inspire confidence to me. Like this is, this is sort of shuffling the deck more than it is replacing and evil with something that's going to be better, which is like power to the people only works if you've got the right people who are leading this thing. 
Right, which as we come to find out, Kathleen is not the right people. And early on, dude, that first scene was so unsettling when, yeah, you see like literally point blank executions, people being hung, like you said, drugged through the streets, made me sick. I was like, whoa, this is like pretty graphic for a show that is intentionally graphic almost all the time. This is the first time I've been really unsettled seeing this. And I'm already, you know, we're conditioned to fucking hate Kathleen. She's after our characters. She's after the characters we know we're going to meet. The performance was so bad that you like are irritated to be in those scenes anyway. Well, not in this episode. We will disagree on that. It's really unsettling me. I don't know. Nick, where were you at with first this first little bit? I wasn't entirely interested in seeing the Ravagers take over Fedra. Like it's it felt like it was wasting more time. The whole Kathleen side story is just a waste of time. A hundred percent. I know why they did it. I know that it was to flesh out Henry as a character and to make you care more about Sam and his eventual turning. But I think they established that with just the sort of opening of this episode where they were spending time and it was very quiet because they turned Sam into a deaf character. And that was, you know, cool. I I thought that worked well, Um, but they could have cut out every single scene with Ravagers and this, these last two episodes would have been just as good in a video game, but not in a prestige television show. Like, if I don't give, if I don't know the why and the wherefore, and it's just nameless, shapeless people who are coming after them, I don't give a shit. And it's not to say that I need to empathize with Kathleen and the Ravagers, but I want to know the full picture of what's going on so that I understand what my main characters have intruded into, because that's how you create stakes. If it's just like a bunch of people running around firing bullets and, oh, we got to get Henry. And we don't know or care why that's happening. What's the fucking point? Well, they do that in this episode where, I mean, it's not even really said what a collaborator is. It just, he says, I'm a collaborator. And Joel says, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to help a snake or a rat or whatever he calls him, which is great. But that, that scene. And then later when Henry is talking about him ratting out a great man, that was the scene that made you almost try to care for Kathleen but then she just whiffs the ball by having her awful monologue in her childhood home. And it didn't, it didn't add everything that added to that storyline was purely Henry. And that would have been great by itself. (laughs) You can't build a story on one half. Like that's not how it works. (laughs) All we needed to know was that like, okay, these people are after Henry and then Henry monologues uh, later in the episode to Joel. And now we understand everything we need to know. They're after me because I sold someone out. I didn't need all those scenes in the last episode Again, every scene with Kathleen's a fucking monologue. And then they, like, Nick, you said that that scene in the bedroom, like, I'm supposed to care about this absolute fucking psycho who's like, children must die. Just because you love them, it doesn't matter. And I'm just like, this is fucking crazy. I, I do not feel anything for this person. All we needed to know is that this rebel group is after this person. I don't need to know about the brother. Tommy's motion capture actor having like a touching moment with the rebel leader only to get his head ripped off by the bloater. Like this is whatever. How do you not see how thematically appropriate that whole story is? They've had five episodes of thematically appropriate stuff that actually That's how you make a good show is that everything comes back to the central action. This is the dark mirror of what Joel could become if he experiences the loss of Ellie at the end of the show, instead of making the choice that we all know that he's going to make. Like 
all of these things are leading towards the same conclusion. It's even the same thing with Henry and Sam, where it's like, yes, it's possible to have a beautiful future, maybe, except it could be torn away from you at a moment's notice. And how do you deal with that grief? Joel could carry it, barely. Henry couldn't. That's the point. That's the whole point. Like Ideas versus execution. It is completely poignant thematically. It still didn't need to happen in order to like hit on those same notes. Like Nick said, you could have removed 30 minutes of television and not changed the bottom line of either of these episodes. Every time Kathleen talked in either of these, these episodes, but especially this episode, like there are moments like when she's interrogating the collaborators. And I, I don't know if this is a an actor problem. Like I don't know if this is her just not being good relative to the rest of the people in all of these episodes or if it is a script problem, because there are moments where she'll say something when she was like, burn the bodies, it's faster. And I was like, dude, is this fucking mean girls? That That is awful. Or fucking apples. She was never supposed to be the person doing these things. She's a bad leader. They have cast her with clear fucking Great. intent. And it's, it's working. The fact that you're, it's not a bad actor. It is an actor that is cast in a role to achieve a specific effect that it is clearly having that you're like, I don't believe a word out of this woman's mouth because you don't believe that that's the kind of person who would be leading this group because it's not the kind of person who would be leading this group. Her fucking brother would, but he got sold up the river. That's the whole point. Again, show don't tell anything that I care about regarding the bad guys is all exposition dump. We be show don't tell. Like it was apparent. You're literally saying it right now that you're like, I don't buy this woman as the leader of a group having to do these horrible things. No, no, no. I'm saying I don't like seeing her because every time it was on screen, it was a bad scene with bad dialogue and it took me out of the immersion of the world. I understand what they're trying to do with the character. And like to your point about like, I think about fucking Brian Cranston in, in Breaking Bad. Talk about somebody who you're just like, you're a fucking idiot every step of the way, making bad, impulsive decisions. You are way in over your head, but you're every moment you watch that man on screen, obviously that's a fucking world all time performance. I can totally understand what they're doing with the character. I can be irritated by what they're doing with the character. I can hate that character, but I can still be immersed and compelled by what's happening on screen. That was not the case here. Every single thing she said, I don't want to jump all the way to the end yet, but there were two moments at the end of this episode that Sarah and I like in sync laughed out loud. I was like, I cannot believe they're doing this. And I would just quickly interject to say that I don't think, I don't believe that their intention fully was to make her be the inept leader because there's a specific moment where the right hand man guy is like, yeah, that's what, your brother would have done because he was a caring, compassion person, but we're following you because you're not. And I don't get that feeling from her. I get like a poor performance. That's the only thing I really saw from her, which I know she's capable of a good performance because I watched yellow jacket season one. And I thought that was a great performance from her, but she was playing like this traumatized sort of dopey middle-aged mom. And like that fit really well. And I just did not get, I, I didn't get anything that was really redeeming in this performance. And it made it point. It ruined the sort of side story. It could have been a good side story, Chris. Like you were saying, like it does mirror thematically. And like if it was executed well, it would have been good. But because it wasn't, I don't. I didn't need it. We went from watching like Oscar-worthy performances to like high school theater. And because we spent so much time with her and her people, and again, we have four episodes now. We aren't even halfway through the game. 
Like now we, we were concerned in episode three, episode four. I mean, we're more than halfway through now. What, where is this going? God forbid we get the short end of the stick on some things we actually care about. And we look back and say, glad we spent 48 minutes with these people who died and ended up being completely irrelevant to our character's eventual journey. But Nick, you, you touched on like how they made Sam a deaf character, which I thought was a brilliant way to mirror Ellie and Joel, but do it in a completely refreshing way. And they also, they changed Sam and Henry's relationship from sort of being the reluctant paternal figure, the nagging older brother, right? You almost believe this was father and son, not, not older brother. Um, and I like that it didn't have that sort of acrimonious, like, do what I say or you're going to die, you stupid ass. Even though in the game that comes from a place of love, this was much, much more heartfelt and much more tender, which makes the whole arc like heartbreaking. But Chris, what did you what did you think of those changes? Yeah, they're humans now, which is the same thing that I said about Bill and Frank. Of course, we don't really see it all is that they went from being video game characters that are a facsimile of humans only in so much as they need to advance the plot for our central characters, because that's the point of NPCs in a video game, to being fully fleshed out people. If they were in these circumstances, how would they realistically behave towards their loved ones, especially with someone who has like a disability, who 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 is not hearing uh, and is communicating with sign language? I agree, a brilliant fucking choice in a show that quite often has to do with needing to be very, very quiet that we get a lot of silence uh, with some really great stuff from this kid who, by the way, they didn't think they were going to be able to get someone who was deaf and who could act this part and who was a child actor. Um, And so they literally put out a call on Twitter and were hoping that they'd get like 70 people to respond to this casting call. They got five and one of them happened to be this kid who turned in a fucking fantastic performance. Um, like Jesus Christ, like the moment where two in particular, the, where he's, he, they're signing, he's signing with Henry about, is he dead? Is the doctor dead? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's dead. And just like tears in his eyes, just approaching Henry and just wrapping his arms around him. I was like, God damn, like that is an actual ass kid who just sold that moment. That's incredibly fucking hard to do for somebody who's that age. And then of course the last scene, course. which we'll talk about. I just liked the, the small sort of moments in between the sort of restlessness, the, the like willingness to just accept these people as a friend, like the bonding moments between him and Ellie. I mean, I, I thought that was all like done really well and it. It not only advanced his character, but also obviously the total point of it was to advance Ellie's character and to like show her being a kid because we haven't seen her be a kid and she is a kid. So they arrive at the safe house. We're still back in time. We see like, you know, the safe house that Kathleen stumbled across in the last episode. We see Sam and Henry with the doctor. And this is where we, we, we see for the first time that Sam and Henry's relationship is going to be different than, you know, what we expect from the game. And when the doctor says uh, he's scared because you're scared, you get that interaction with them as Henry goes over and he puts on the strong face. He gives him the bag of crayons and said, this place is ugly. And like, you know, let's, let's freshen this place up a little bit. And he's still putting on this strong front so that his kid brother can still be a kid. Sam played by Kavon Woodward. My favorite character of this show through five episodes, every moment with him and knowing where it was going the whole time, there's this feeling of like despair in the pit of my stomach 
that I have not had in this show. Hopelessness of like, what the fuck is the point? What is the point? And this world is so dark and just knowing and, and his performance. I mean, tears, dude. Every moment that Sam and Henry have together, every moment that Sam and Ellie have together. Oh my gosh. But you see, you see in the safe house that change to their relationship. And then like you mentioned earlier, the next day when, or not the next day, but it's like a, a 10 days later or whatever. And he asked, like, is he coming back? And Henry finally has to, well, I got to fucking tell him like, not even just that, but just Sam, like being annoyed and like being a little kid, like I'm hungry. Give me some food. He's just like making noise and let's like, open the beans. And he's like, no, we can't like, we literally can't do that. It's little things like that. It was very subtle. It wasn't like you weren't going to be annoyed at the kid. Obviously, like it's a very stressful scenario, but. He was still playing the part like he he was comfortable enough, like his brother was giving him enough comfort that he was allowed to be annoyed at not having food. Yes. And then it was that small crack that you see, like, is the doctor dead? And it's like, I thought that was really well done. Dude, that hug they share. It's like a preview of what's to come in that tender moment that it mirrors what we're seeing with Joel and Ellie as as the reluctant parent, whereas Henry and Sam, like Henry has embraced this role of protecting his little brother. And everything he does, I mean, everything everyone does in the show is is like, you know, for their level. And that's the whole fucking point of of this story. But they arrive in the the, the building that Joel and Ellie are in, and uh, we catch up to present time, and they've got empty guns trained on them. Henry's performance, he looks scared. Dude, Sam, seeing him looking angry, like trying to intimidate Joel with a gun in his face, Dude, that shit was hard for me to watch. And every time I cut back to him and he's got his brows furrowed and he's pointing the gun just a little more vigorously, I don't know why that was so unsettling to me because he is this like tender, scared child. And that's sort of like mirroring Ellie, you know, directly as like this this scared person who's got to put on this strong front. And dude, that was that was difficult for me to watch and see. Uh, but but anyway, they they share a meal. Joel is very reluctantly trusting these people. So we get the exposition dump. We learn about like how awful the KC Fedra was. Why is this guy a rat if he is so clearly like, fuck Fedra, right? And that gets answered later on. He has to have a better reason. He clearly does not fuck with these people. But another, uh, another Sam moment. I feel like every scene that did not feature Kathleen had a Sam moment that just got me choked up, man. Like hearing him laugh in the background while Joel and Henry are talking and it's it's Ellie and him having a laugh, and Henry turns around and says, "I haven't heard that in a long time." Like his performance, even when he's smiling, dude, there's just this weight. He and he always had tears in his eyes. It almost looked like yeah, Henry was beat the fuck down. <laughs> he <laughs> was having, he was, he was, he was not having a good time. <laughs> you felt it every step of the way, man. Yeah, he's terrific. They go on their little expedition. They go through the tunnels. Something that I like, and we've mentioned before, is like how. How they're weaving humor in. And sometimes it is like, here's the dad joke and the poop in your jeans moment. And that's funny. But there's so many moments, like when they're in the tunnels and he says, your dad is whatever. And they both at the same time say, not a dad. dad. They fit these moments of levity in without pulling a Thor Ragnarok and undercutting the moment. You know what I mean? It's just subtle enough. You get a laugh. It's very keeping in character and not like taking the moment seriously as well. It's yeah, it's totally like real. I'm sure there are a million comps for this, but seeing this group like go through abandoned buildings, there's already something sort of unsettling about that, right? Seeing a world we recognize in a state that it does not belong in and the suspense of like 
a zombie could be around the corner at any moment. And they do the unexpected thing here, which is Henry was right. There are no infected in the tunnels. And the whole time you're watching, you're expecting it. And the thing that I liken it to the most is like watching Jurassic Park. At any moment, there's a velociraptor around the corner. It's a very specific feeling to me that I felt at a, as a very young child watching that movie that I have only felt now as an adult in this episode of this show. Seeing them going through the tunnel and you just know, you know the infected are going to be down there. That's how it has to go. And then th- there isn't, which obviously sets up a massive set piece later on. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel that tension. It was just sort of like the characters were a little bit too nonchalant. There wasn't like enough musical cues to really like build that tension. It didn't seem like they were trying to sell that tension too much. It was pretty uh, standard wandering through abandoned buildings for me. I, I liken it to Jurassic Park because you spend all the time in this place and it's normal and everyone, people are doing normal ass things. And then you come back at the end of the movie and they're like eating jello. Okay, the drama's over. And they're in this familiar safe space that you've seen throughout the movie. And then there are motherfucking dinosaurs in there. And it's sort of like flipping that safe space and turning it at, you know, at an unexpected moment into a very much not safe space. That's just what I expected. And that was just me being on edge. Chris, what did you see here when they're in the former safe house in this bunker and they're waiting for nightfall? Well, we got the, you know, there's the comic book finally that I was like, when is, when are the comic books going to show up? Of course. And it's like, ah, there's the comic book and something that they bonded that Ellie has like some minor ASL, which was kind of a neat wrinkle. And it's like, eh, something, something Fedra school hand wave, like fine, you know, or maybe she's learning from, from Sam in the moment with the little sketch pad. I don't know. The feeling I got was her communicating with him and him communicating to her. She was like picking up the signals that he, he was doing. And like he got the, you know, the survive and endure. And there was the fun little like that's a bad phrase. That's just the same thing twice. Like that's yeah, not good. Like I like that sort of interplay sort of uh, self-degradation of the the comic book. But yeah, it, for me, it was purely her picking it up from Sam and having these these uh, phrases that are definitely going to. The, this is like the setup. And then there's later there'll probably be a payoff with that. Yeah, there could could well be. Could well be like little, little signs that just occur normally. Because like, what was the third word that she learned from, from it? Because there was survive and endure, which she did repeatedly. Promise. And then there was a third one, promise. I think, mm, yeah, it was promise. Yeah. yeah, because when they're staying up and she said promise. Like that, I mean, talk about three, just like total hit you over the head future motifs, right? Yeah, totally. And I'd love to see little things like that come back to play. There was a great... Hamlet at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival that I saw the actor who played the ghost of King Hamlet was a was a deaf actor who signed the whole ghost speech and Hamlet was interpreting the ghost speech and signing back to the ghost a lot of the time. Uh, And when Gertrude little moments like what Gertrude and Hamlet would talk about the late King Hamlet that they would, you know, sort of unconsciously like sign specific words while they were talking about it because they were so used to it and it was really beautiful. And then at the end with the rest is silence. He signed silence when he couldn't get the last word out. And I was like, ah, genius. Um, so I'd love to see, I'd love to see moments like that of, of her, maybe when she's doped up on the operating table of I'll be okay. Right. 
you know, promise and she signs promise or something. I don't know. Like, that'd be cool. Oh, my gosh. Stop. Don't get EJ's hopes up. He's going to get sad when they don't do that. <laughs> he is. He you, you hitch way too much on. I think it's one thing to expect, like, a quality product to be produced, which we should all expect. But it's another thing to be like, I expect these specific things from this quality product and you should free yourself from the yoke of that burden, my friend. Um, I know I liked the, the Joel Henry relationship as it as it developed and the little cracks and we got to see him kind of start to try to make an earnest effort at connection. Um, it's like, all right, you seem to be on the level. There haven't been any infected like we're 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 down here. We we're okay. We'll wait for a nightfall. Okay. Great. Like this is going great. Like you, you, I asked and you delivered and, and that goes a long way for somebody who's been hardened. Like he has, we see more Ellie and Sam playing and, you know, showing hope in a bleak situation and showing how people adapt in this world. And even though everything is horrible, like people still find some way to be normal in these little moments. And that's just being human. We get to the big ass set piece. They get out of the tunnel. A sniper starts shooting at them. There's a really good moment there before the uh, the rest of the Ravagers show up. When Joel gets up there and and he has the gun trained on the guy and he says, don't. It was just a bleak sort of reality of this is the world. And obviously this guy is not like living here by himself. Obviously he has connections to the Ravagers. He's been supplied. He's not living by himself in the, the outskirts of this town that has been, you know, run. Like the Fedra has been run out and a new regime has been installed. Like. This is clearly just like an old man who's on the outskirts, but Joel still has like the humanity of like saying, hey, you don't have to do this. Just put put your gun down, slide it over. I'll get out of here. But the old guy didn't have anything to live for. So he suicided by Joel. You just see everything on his face in those little microseconds. And he he's almost pleading. I mean, he is pleading, but you hear it in his yeah. voice how desperate he is. Like, please don't do this because he doesn't want to fucking kill more people. He has to, right. but he doesn't want to. Yeah. God damn. All right, Chris, I know you got to get going really quick here. Break down this this freaking set piece. I know you were you were stoked in the voice memo to me yesterday. Oh yeah. I mean, I yeah, I really nerded out because I, I, I I'm big on you know being a big Chris Nolan stan. I'm always like, who's doing real ass practical effects and who's just doing like lazy albeit very expensive cgi in lieu of having humans drive a lot of this action so the you know checkoff sinkhole from the last episode sort of like comes to play and the infected burst out like clickers and and runners burst out and just like pour out into this field where the ravagers have shown up Kathleen's got this speech, which apparently nobody but me in this conversation bought. That's like, everybody's going to fucking die. Get over it. Like, it's the end of the world. Uh, I give yourself up. We're probably going to kill the kids, too. So Henry gives himself up. And then, yeah, it infected pouring out everywhere. And then here comes here comes the bloater uh, that we saw in the trailers climbing out. Just this like absolutely hulking creation, which was like it felt like a little bit more like stocky muscular substantial as opposed to like just a big fucking infected uh from my own memory which is admittedly a little spotty so they pour out and we get such things as the bloater uh ripping uh kathleen's lieutenant yeah ripping <laughs> tommy's head off 
uh, like far out of frame, like that it's not, they're not going to like put it in our face, which they haven't done with any of the like gore and violence in the show, which I've appreciated, um, including something at the end of this episode that I really want to fucking talk about, uh, more brutal that way. Uh, yes, uh, more brutal that way. And also it's like, oh fuck, like that, that is a thing that is happening, but we're not going to revel in it. It's just, that is a part of this world is that your head could get fucking ripped off by a bloater at any time. Sold by the reaction more than the action, which is good. It's just good television, good acting, good portrayal of it. Absolutely. We've got Joel like peppering shots down with the rifle, trying to keep everybody else clear. We see Sam and Henry pinned down under a car. Ellie like climbs through a window and then gets chased in by uh, a a child that's become a clicker. Uh, Horrifying. So gross. Played by a nine-year-old contortionist. So all of that movement is real. None of that is CGI. Zero percent of that sequence is CGI. That kid is really flipping over those fucking seats, bending backwards, getting in Ellie's face. Yeah, they did a little with like speeding up and slowing down certain actions to give it a little more of a stuttering kind of movement. But it was still like very effective uh, practical effects. Yeah, they toss like a little bit over the top of it but the the heart of it is like they didn't have to create this whole model it was like we're going to put and it's a similar with the bloater which is what i which is what i sent to ej that that is a 66 stuntman who worked on game of thrones wearing an 88 pound cast foam and rubber latex suit that they covered in like a slimy lubricant so that all mm. of the spores and shoots and like fungal things growing out of it would pop in the dim nighttime uh, lighting with the fire that they were doing. Yeah. I thought it was pretty excessive that they actually filmed him ripping the guy's head off. I thought that was a bit too far (laughs) over the line stunt actors, you know, can't tell him. No, (laughs) he had a bright future ahead of him, but you know, they decided we have to get the shot. Uh, And I think the only thing they CGI'd on the bloater, honest to God is the swinging of the stomach. I think everything else is just the actor in space with all this shit all over him. Uh, there's some awesome set photos of him in the suit on set when they're like in between shots. That's like, yep, that's the thing. They really fucking made that. And it shows. The bloater is pretty faithful to the depiction in the video game visually. I think a little bit taller probably. I mean, 6'6", six, six, but look just like it, even down to the, the goofy hanging belly. Okay, as the bloater ascends from this fucking abyss, we cut to Perry, Kathleen's right-hand man, and it does this fucking hilarious slow motion moment. Oh my God. Yeah. The slow-mo was a little bit goofy. It was so bad. Cause it wasn't just slow motion. It was like, oh, this is clearly 24 frames per second. And they, they were like, let's slow this down and make it like, or to match up a musical cue or something. I don't know. It was, it was awful. I cannot believe they did that, which made the rest of that sequence with the bloater kind of funny to me. He comes out literally swinging like an MMA fighter. How does it know to throw punches? Which is, I guess is better than him like throwing spore bombs like a fucking baseball at the main characters. <laughs> but the whole scene is so frantic. And straight out of the video game, how many times in the game are you, Joel, with a sniper perched somewhere shooting infected so that Ellie can get through her path to a safe point? And that's what this whole sequence is. And, you know, Joel can do nothing but but sit up here and shoot like he has very little agency over what's happening down below and he can only watch. Right. And each piece was like clearly fed into the other pieces rather than just being chaos. And Ellie's fending for herself and Joel's fending for himself and Henry and Sam are fending for themselves. 
it was a very clear A to B to C to D to E plotting of all of the action that Ellie needs to get to cover. Joel has to pick off clickers so that Ellie could get to cover. Ellie's no longer in cover. Joel's got to help get her out of the truck because the kid clicker's going to fucking claw her face off. Ellie gets out of the car. Oh, he's trying to save Sam. Sam and Henry are over there. So Joel's like, not my problem, but Ellie's my problem. But also maybe I care about them. It's like enough for interpretation until later when we hear him say, you should come with us. That in the moment, we're like, what is motivating him? But ultimately, ultimately, he makes a choice like, okay, I'm going to pick those two off. We're going to get them out. We're going to we're going to save them. I'm going to help them. Just a clear progression of why I needed to give a shit about everything that was happening in the action rather than stuff's running everywhere and a whole bunch of stuff's happening and we're going to check in with these people. Now it's over. Yeah. had a very coherent through line despite. Yeah. I, I do agree. EJ, the, the bloater was a little bit campy in a, in a episode that is not very campy. So that was a little bit of a uh, tonal whiplash, but they, they, it was fine after that sort of first initial uh, appearance. And like, I joked when it happened, I was like, I hear boss music. Like, that's what I said, like out loud to Lindsay. Like it was a little, it was a little bit on the nose, but I think it's a hard thing to include in a show that's been so tonally like depressing and dour and dire and intense to have like a video game thing happen. So I I don't know how they should have done it, but it was just a little bit corny the way they did do it. How about when Kathleen shows up, once everyone is through the gauntlet, Kathleen jumps out like fucking golden face in a Michael Scarn movie. Like, aha, but you're not going anywhere yet. And I'm like, oh, we got to fucking do this still. And then the contortionist does a front flip and rips her face off. Thank God it was quick. <laughs> Thank God it was quick. Cause yeah. she, she runs out. It's like stage left. I'm here to stop you again. Fucking terrible. Um, so she's, di- she dies. And by the hand of the child, which is fitting, uh, after her fucking sociopathic monologue about how nobody matters and children should die. Great. And now we're in the hotel and we know what's coming. There are two things that they do here that I think improve on the game exponentially. Is one is we see Ellie try to give him her blood. Oh my God. But first Sam asks, like, is it still you if you become a monster? Like there's a scared little kid that's the other moment. Tears in his eyes of looking like, I Oof. don't fucking know what is going to happen to me. You're three years older than me. You're basically an adult. Like, I need you to help. I don't have the frame of reference for this. Like, tell me that it's going to be okay. And like you said, she does. And I, for a half second, I thought, are they really going to do this? Like, they they, they had me strung along even knowing how it ends in the game of thinking like, is this going to be like one of those big changes they talk about that the blood's going to work and they wake up and she gives it to him and we wake up in the morning and he's sitting on the bed. And the really fucking heartbreaking thing about that to me is the question, right? Is like, is it still you inside if you become a monster? And we know that the fungus repairs a lot of the stuff in the body that inhibits the fungus's ability to keep growing and spreading, right? He still can't hear in the morning. Well, I know where you're going with this. You, we both listen to the Insider Podcast, and I think I, I kind of take umbrage with the idea that that's an indication that... I don't listen to any podcast. Not even this one. I mean, I, I just I don't. I listen to, like, The Watch sometimes, but that's it. Um, do you read a transcript of the podcast? 
How do you hear all the things Craig Mazin has to say? Because it's all in the podcast and you regurgitate it word for word when you're quoting Craig Mazin. <laughs> oh, sometimes I get it from from my my buddy Nate. He he gives me a lot of a lot of the good quotes, uh, which is where I forward that on. But no, I don't I don't know if there's any discourse in the podcast about that, but I thought it was I thought it was a valid point that like he is probably he's still in there at least a little bit. Yeah, maybe. I, I read it I mean, you think about when he got bit to where he turned, like he him sitting on the edge of that bed, he would have literally just turned given the timeline. It was maybe like six hours later or something like that. Cause it was like deep night when they were like heading through the tunnels and like, it was just sunrise basically. Right. I mean, it's interesting to think about like, Oh, is this kid still in there and he's doing these things that he can't control and he doesn't, he doesn't want to attack Ellie, but he is because of the fungus. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting thing to like, think about. I don't think it necessarily needs to be explored. And I don't think it really matters. It doesn't. And, just a little wrinkle for us to wonder about. Yeah. EJ, remind me, because you you were taking notes. Uh, what was the content of the conversation that Joel and Henry had at this point? Was there like really much more to their conversation beyond Joel like finally relenting and saying, hey, you guys should come with us. It's good for Ellie. It's good for your Ellie as well. <laughs> That's That was basically the gist of the conversation. Uh, he's like, it's easier for kids because they don't have anyone depending on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So they see and hear the you know the kids being kids. They're reading the comic book in the other room, and obviously they're decompressing from this horrific experience and almost dying. And he's like, "Yeah, kids can be kids. You know, it's more difficult for us." This is when I knew that there would be no happy ending. Okay, they they do the blood. Another heartbreaking moment where dude, I fucking bro- I could not handle it when when Sam says, "Will you stay awake with me?" I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. dude, I I lost my shit, dude." And I knew, and when she falls asleep and it fades to black and she wakes up, I was like, oh no. Oh, I, that's exactly the same thing, Chris. I thought maybe this is the change. They're get, we're going to get some hope. We're going to confirm, you know, and and I would have been, frankly, pretty pissed off if they did because it would have yeah, felt like it cheapened. And then they wake up and Sam has turned. He attacks Ellie, crashes out into the living room. Henry like whips the gun out and trains it on Joel. Who's trying to get a gun to train it on Sam. And he shoots to scare Joel back. He shoots to scare Joel back. And then his body almost takes over of its own volition, which again, just chef's fucking kiss to this performance uh, by, by this actor who played Henry that like the body almost moves of its own volition, shoots Sam right in the head and he drops. And as he's trying to process and trying to work it out, it isn't a dramatic sort of like it was in the game where he was like, I did this. I have to, you know, da da da. It was just, I can't No, this can't. I know there's what did I do? What did I do? The hand just goes straight up to the head and, and he's down. And look, this is what I, this is what I wanted to, to co- come back to quite a bit ago that like, we all know in our current, like sociopolitical climate that there have been, way too goddamn many like real videos of dead young black men uh, at the hands of law enforcement, at the hands of people who took the law into their own hands in the case of Maude Arbery. Um, they did not, the way they shot the end of this episode was so fucking respectful and so fucking tasteful. Like the way that we track Henry's growing awareness of what he's just done it's not by lingering on like the dead body of this young black boy. It's on a growing pool of blood and we barely see Sam at all. And it was a great, like 
seeing that grow as his awareness grows, like just a, just an amazing visual metaphor. And then we never, not once with both of them, do we linger on shots of like their slain bodies. And I was like, that is the way to do this. That does not re-traumatize people who've literally lived through these things in their communities while still doing it in a way that it's going to fuck people up emotionally. And Tiffany, Tiffany did not know what was happening and she was fucking devastated, like destroyed devastated even more almost than she was after episode three which was like happy cries but still like upset she was absolutely obliterated by this episode so anyway i just wanted to like shout them out and go i appreciated the way they shot that it could have been trauma porny and they didn't succumb to that and i really respect that it was tragic and it was bitter or frank and bill was bittersweet no sweetness here no there are two points i want to make before we cut loose here one is that most of the violence in this show especially Joel being violent. Almost everything Joel does, it, it's all seen through Ellie's perspective. And a lot of the time, that yeah. means cutting away from the act itself. And here again, we see, or we don't see, we hear oh my God. this violence. And the camera is just trained on Bella Ramsey. And the subtleties as she is reacting to his movements, and you see that moment of realization on her face, is like, oh my God, he's about to fucking pull the trigger. And then he shoots, and the the sound that escapes her mouth fucking destroyed me, dude. It was yeah. so believable. And then the tears come. She's already crying, but then the big stream comes out, right? I mean, it yep. was just like timing was perfection. Yep. This is only episode five. We have so much more to do. Bella Ramsey is them. It was the right choice. It's always been the right choice. They can carry season two and season three. It's almost getting to a point where, like, thinking of Ellie and Joel in the video game, those are hilarious, campy caricatures. I'm now seeing both of these people as these characters. Thank you for finally seeing the game the way I saw it from the beginning. (laughs) Different medium, obviously, you know, but, like, you can't get away with that sort of exaggerated performance in a prestige TV show with people. And no matter how realistic of a game the visual portrayal of these people is in the game series. It's always has to be exaggerated. It has to be a cartoon. It is a cartoon. It's just a very adult and morbid cartoon. So there was no way that you could do one-to-one. I mean, can you imagine, can you just imagine for one second, Troy Baker and his doofy ass fedora trying to play Joel in real life? I would eat a bullet if that fucking happened. That would be (laughs) awful. (laughs) I could not imagine that. So thank God they got real actors. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean he'll be like some whatever worthless ravager backplot character. He'll be a he'll be the doctor that Pedro Pascal murders. Maybe. Oh my god. Well, I think this might have been my favorite episode. Like I said, Sam's performance, uh, what it told us about this world, and knowing that he was gonna die at the end the way he did, and Henry and Sam's story to me of all the ancillary characters, this is the one like that that really got me. At five episodes in, four to go, how the fuck are they going to tell the rest of this game and do it justice? Two-hour episodes? I mean, how? Well, they already said like what the longest episode and shortest episodes were, and I think the longest episode was the first one, and that was, what, hour 20? I want to say hour 15. The runtimes that got leaked, I think that all except for the finale are more than an hour. Um, some not by much. I think the finale is like 48 minutes, um, supposedly. Um, no, I see it. One episode. I it. Yeah, four episodes left. We get... 
one episode for Tommy, one for Joel to get injured. Uh, we get left behind slash Ellie in the winter, and then we get to the lab. I think that that's pretty. I, I don't think I, I'm not concerned with regards to how are they going to fit it? Because those are like the only four things left that matter as far as I'm concerned. So and a lingering shot with a giraffe. Yeah, which will happen and I will cry. I will cry again because I cried the first time and I was like, holy shit, I can't believe they're doing this in a video game. This is amazing. Now I get to see it on HBO. And we can all agree that nobody needs to play the video game because you can just watch the show and it's better. I said that to a friend. I was on a retreat this weekend with a client. He said that he he's a total PC guy. He said, I'm waiting till March. I'm going to play it and then I'm going to watch it because he's a big TV guy. And we talk about shows all the time and what we're watching. And I said, don't, don't do it. Just watch the show. Just watch it. So I said I likened it to The Martian, where I read the book before I saw the movie, and it was the rare uh, time where I wish that I had just seen the movie first. I usually like the source material before the adaptation, but sometimes, especially if it's a faithful adaptation, sometimes you just want to go in uh, raw and experience something as is. And in this case, I would say that if you haven't played the game, do not play it first. I was just fucking with you. I was just, you know playing my hardball stance on cinematic third-person action-adventure games from first parties that are Western AAA, you know. You're a fucking indie hipster. We get it. We get it. With a predilection towards Japanese-made AAA games. but you know. Which, I mean, if you're playing them in English, you want to talk about camp. Like, that is fucking egregious. And I say this as a huge fan of the genre, that there hasn't been a single goddamn good performance by an English actor in a Final Fantasy game, literally like ever, ever. Yeah, source material. That's, uh, I think that's his, <laughs> maybe that's his Japanese media targeted towards teenagers. Dude, this is why when people say that anime dubs are like the most horrendous thing ever, it's that you just don't realize how bad something is when you can't understand the language it's being spoken in. It's why people with British accents are never bad actors. <laughs> but that's why I'm like, I don't care what the standards for excellence are in like Japanese voice media but I sure as fuck know what they are for English voice media. And this ain't fucking it. I'm not putting up with this. I will read my television. I will not listen to bad voice acting. I would rather, as you said, Nick, eat a bullet than listen to fucking dubbed anime outside of very, very few select goaded performances like Steve Blum and Cowboy Bebop. And I love the Yu Yu Hakusho English cast because I grew up with it. But that's like and Dragon Ball because you don't want to listen to an 80 year old woman scream. No, I don't. And it, again, it's because I have like youth attachment to it. But anything that's coming out now, like Attack on Titan, Demon Slayer, like Spy Family, like absolutely not. Will I watch those dubbed? I think you're crazy, dude. Modern dubs are so much better than they were when we were children. I've listened to some modern dubs. No, they're fucking not. They still have no time to record these. They get no direction. All they're doing is playing quality. Like it's bad acting. It is. I would not let my undergraduate college students do this, let alone fucking paid professionals. But that's the reality of the industry is you get 30 minutes to knock out seven episodes worth of dialogue. And it's like, well, you know, the character just fucking do it. They don't get any direction. Yeah, it's not great. They should get more direction, but, but you still get good. You still can get good performances. I love Chris Sabat as all my and oh, every other role he's in so because good. he's a goat. Yes. But I mean, that's obviously one instance I like the My Hero dub. Me too. My my, I, I, There are performances in that show that get me like legit emotional. The only bad voice is the bad character that shouldn't even be a character. And I don't even have to, I don't even have to name the purple grape guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's hilarious, dude. 
No, he's the absolute worst. There's no redeeming value to him as a character. No, he's a disgusting little prick, which is why he's so great, because there's no reason for him to be in hero school with these actual good people. Haha, ha, the joke is that he sucks. It's great when it's executed well, it's excellent, like fucking Moomin Rider in One Punch Man. I I love Moomin Rider because he embodies the spirit of a hero. Yeah, but he's not a rapist. <laughs> is that a thing in My Hero? I don't watch that show. Just the little great boy is just a pervert. He's and a that's perv. the joke is that he's a shitty character whose only role is to be a perv. And in English, and there's that's no joke. probably rapey and horrible. And in Japanese, it's like, oh, you tropey McTrope. And then we move on. Oh, Japan. Oh, Japan. We infantilize the Japanese and they can't be held accountable for the mistakes they make. <laughs> Let's get out of this. Let's cut down. <laughs> cut, cut Chris loose.